Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Topo Designs. Based in Denver, Colorado, Topo is committed to creating quality bags and clothing that stand the test of time. Check out their products at topodesign.com. Sound and Vision is also brought to you by Charter Coffee House. Charter is on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, which is one block from the Graham L stop. They have great coffee from Middle State Roasters and more. Great food and friendly service. Find out more at chartercoffee.com or follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK. Fred Tomaselli is an artist born in Santa Monica who's based out of New York City. He's had solo shows at the Metropolitan Museum, the Orange County Museum, James Cohen, the Brooklyn Museum, White Cube, the Rose Museum, the Albright Knox, Site Santa Fe, the Whitney Museum, and many others. He's been included in group shows at the Aspen Art Museum, LA MOCA, the Whitney Biennial, the Berlin Biennale, and MoMA, just to name a few. His works are in the collection of the Addison Gallery of American Art, the Albright Knox, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, the Carnegie Museum of Art, the Cornell Fine Arts Museum, the Guggenheim, the Hirshhorn, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and many others. I stopped by Fred's East Village studio to talk about perceptual portals, the James Terrell moment, escapist art, seeing the germs live, and much more. Here's our conversation. And if you could bike over it, you can kind of like laugh at all the people paying $80 for a car ride over to the city. If they can even get a car, because apparently you'll have to uh, have carpools. Yeah. You can't just go single rider. I've been looking at the schemes, you know, I've been looking at all the schemes. I'm fine with the winter, except I'm from Southern California and I don't trust ice and snow on the road. So that might be a deal breaker in the winter. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, but they um, they keep talking about all these plans they have for it, but I don't think any of them are going to work. You know, a friend of mine uh, was telling me the other day, she thought that uh, um, there was just too much money in Williamsburg for this for it to be insane. Right. And she trusts, for some re- weird reason, she trusts that the city's going to like make a plan. But she is talking about the city, so I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, maybe, maybe she knows something I don't. Maybe she thinks that the real estate you know, developers will put the kind of undue pressure. But um, anyway. Yeah, but um, that's, that's a, a train that won't be running. That, it won't do you be know running. the numbers of people who go across every day? If, if that train is like two minutes late, yeah. like you can hardly even get on the platform yeah. at Graham Avenue in the morning. They you know, I don't even know what, what they'll, I mean, this is, we're talking about enormous amounts of people. Right. There is a Grand Street bus that's going to be at Grand and Bushwick that's uh-huh. going to go uh, express route across the bridge this is the scheme. <laughs> two, two, we'll stop in Essex Street, yeah. one stop, and the it's second Essex. stop will be 1st and 14th. And uh, then it will continue down to do the L train stops in Manhattan, 3rd yeah. you know, to 8th Avenue. Right. Um, theoretically, in a perfect world, I'll get on that bus, 
and I'll do my email and yeah. uh, in the winter, and I'll get off the bus right in front of my studio, and everything will be oh, fine. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah, it'll be beautiful, but I don't, I don't trust it. I, I mean, don't trust it. This city's so dysfunctional. Why, why should I believe that it's going to be good? Yeah, it, it, it already sucks. Why shouldn't I, I believe it? Why shouldn't I believe it's? I have no faith in the MTA's ability to. Yeah, I mean, and terrible. if you think about it, one bus is like one subway car. And each train has a ton of cars. So they, they, they're going to have to have like a train of buses. I yeah. mean, there's just going to have to be one after another, after another, after another. Imagine I, the traffic. I, we will see. We will see. It's going to be a hell. It's, it's going to be hellacious. Fortunately, this studio is set up so I can sleep here oh, should I need to. Yeah. And I might just end up camping here, I mean, you know, from time to time. Why not? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. It's set up, you know, you I got heat, I got AC, uh, you know, I got a washer dryer. I'm cool. Yeah. So you just sent off a bunch of stuff, right? I did. Yeah. Where? Where? Uh, it's a, a solo show at um, um, uh, Oceanside Museum of Art, in, uh, out adjacent to uh, San Diego, in oh, Southern nice. California. Yeah, I'm going out there in the middle of the month to do the install, and uh, be nice to be. You know, it's like home nice turf, be. right? Yeah, I mean, home-ish, home-adjacent. Exactly. Yeah, home-adjacent. Climate-wise. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a funny thing. You know, San Diego is its own thing. And, like, yeah. if you're the kind of, if you're L.A.-adjacent, you don't really go to San Diego. Right. So um, it's a, 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 a it, it still is, like, more mysterious of a place than it, it, it ought to be, you yeah. know? It's mostly, like, it's a place I would usually drive past to go to Mexico, right. you know, yeah. but, uh, but I've spent a little time there and it's not so bad, you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, it's a little Republican-y, but, you know, San Diego, San Diego. Yeah. yeah a little. I did one of, um, I had one of the best karaoke experiences of my life in San Diego. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we, we, when my band was on tour, we played in LA and then we went down to San Diego because the one guy in the band lived there. Or okay. His parents lived there. Uh-huh. And uh, we did this dive bar. I don't know. This is a long time ago. But uh, we got kicked out for being too loud. Or, right. Like, they cut us off. And then in the van, we set up a karaoke experience in the van. And we would had people singing on the roof of the van. It's, oh, wow. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Oh, that sounds great. What, was the, what kind of band did you have? It was, a, it was kind of like post-rock, I guess you would call it. it okay. Was, uh, instrumental. It was uh, kind of Godspeed, you Black Emperor kind played of thing. With them. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, we played with Godspeed and um, who was the other the other band from San Diego? Shoot, they were kind of of that ilk. But um, oh, yeah, okay. We played, oh wow, we played with bands like that. Oh, fantastic! That yeah, we had great. Cello, what was the name of the band? Thirty three point three. Oh, okay. We had um, a cello, upright bass, uh, trumpet, trombone, guitar, and drums. Oh wow, far out. So it was kind of like orchestrated e. Weather report meets like rock or something. Okay. I don't know. It was oh, a mixture. So you had a little bit of uh, a fusion jazz mixed in there with the with your sort of post rockishness. A little bit. I mean, it wasn't too out or kind of. It was composed, but it had. Oh, okay. I think just the you guys read music, like you. Like, no, but everything was. Oops, it was there wasn't a lot of improv. Uh huh. It was. It was pretty by the book. We were tight. Oh, far out. Are you going to go see Godspeed and uh, at? Um, uh, the Basilica in, in uh, I didn't even August. Know. I didn't even know they were playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're playing at the Basilica in Hudson in August. I might. I I, I was going to go the first time they played at Basilica uh, a few years ago, and I tore my calf muscle surfing oh. uh, the day before, and ended up like Side I couldn't walk. Yeah. yeah. So this year I'm going to try. Uh, you know, hopefully I won't tear my calf muscle, and I can go see them finally. Yeah. I've seen uh, the Silver Mount Zion. They were really amazing. Yeah. 
uh, their spinoff band. Right. And, you know, so, you know, so maybe this time I'll see. It would be great to see them. It, it's been so long. Because I haven't seen them since we played with them. And that's, yeah, well, we're they, talking 2000, Yeah, and I think they ended up breaking up for a while yeah. and then, I think, reforming a few years ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I heard the last show was amazing. So yeah. I'll, they were I'll, good I'll be live. checking them out. I'll, I heard, yeah, very dynamic, right? Yeah. When they got loud, it just it, thunder, right? Majesty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like cres- a slow crescendo. Yes, exactly. These big builds to, like, triumphantness. Yeah. Yeah, we we played with a lot of bands like that because, or that were unconventional just because we had a cellist. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we would just get put on the bill with like people. You know, we'd do the indie rock stuff, but then it would get experimental. We played with this band. I don't know if you ever heard of them called Arab on Radar. Oh uh, no, I never have. It was pretty amazing. It was like, oh, yeah? really hard but abstract uh-huh. noise, crazy stuff. But oh, terrific. really good. Yeah, right. yeah, we got the experience to. Uh, to play with a lot of different people. And oh. we, we recorded with uh, Bob Weston at Electrical Audio. Uh-huh. The Steve Albini studio. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We got oh. to hang out with them. Yeah, that seems like an amazing studio. It was yeah. incredible. I, seen pit, I, I saw it uh, featured in um, oh, that guy from Nirvana's like, roadshow thing. He oh, visits Steve yeah, Albini yeah. in Chicago. Uh, you know, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. And, uh, and I was like, uh, you know, Steve Albini is Mr you know, indie, indie analog. cred, right? Analog and, guy. Like, yeah, yeah, but man, the studio was really set up. Beautiful. You know, like wood. I mean, it was like a really it's nice. slick studio. I was like shocked, actually. It wasn't some like, I thought it would be some more ad hoc thing right. with like, you know, egg carton just no, t- no. created, you know, it's stapled to the walls, but it was this state-of-the-art sound studio. Yeah, he's meticulous about, like, every millimeter and what yeah, it does yeah. to sound. And he's a man after my own heart because he had great coffee machines, even back then. Right. Really great coffee machines. Yeah, that's funny. I, I just don't see Steve Albini as a lifestyle guy, but, you know. Um, I think it's just that's his passion. You know, it's sonic, it's sound, and then it's coffee. Right. Those are his passions. Yeah, well, coffee can be the big fuel, right? It's my it's fuel. M- it's my f- yeah. drug of choice. <laughs> That's what I do is coffee in the studio. Right. So um, did you have any bands prior to... Um, yeah, uh, growing no? up all the time. Played music since, you know, junior high school. Uh-huh. So you started out in, like, punk bands and then sort of, like, uh, kind of moved to post-rock? Ironically, I started out with like shoegazer stuff. Oh, okay. We were into like slow dive and ride and my bloody oh, okay. Valentine and stuff like that. Oh, right, right. Wall of sound guitar stuff. Well, you're younger than me, so yeah. yeah punk rock is already old by then. So I mean, I liked, you know, I like Black Flag and, and Minor Threat. I kind of I skateboarded, so uh-huh. that was there. Right, know? right. But just as much as like Public Enemy or you know Blur or something. Right, right. It's pretty eclectic about. What yeah, we I came to. of age in the '70s, so you know, you know. Punk rock was like you know, it all or nothing yeah. sort of gambit, right. you know. So you, you don't you just, dabble. You, were either, you didn't dabble. No, it was like you, you were in it to win it, you know, or yeah. you know, or in it to watch it sell out, or in it to watch it fall apart. Yeah, you know. So well, West Coast punk was that? That wasn't hitting yet, right? Because that was like the second wave. West Coast punk came later, but um, I mean, there were punk bands and. You know, seventy-seven for sure. Yeah. But you know, a good year or two uh, after the big English explosion, and a couple of years, uh, three, probably three or four years after the New York. But you know, when it came, it 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 uh, it was fun because there weren't very many people that were into it. Right. You know? So it was a, it was a fun little scene. Did you ever see the Germs play? 
I did. Really? My first my first show I ever saw was uh, The Germs in 1978, so I was a little late to it. Yeah. But I did see The Germs, and uh, the band that opened up for him, the first show was uh, The Dead Kennedys. Oh, my God. At, it was at Mabuhe in uh, San Francisco. And then I got to know Darby a little bit. And really? A little bit, yeah. Enough to know that I didn't, like, trust him. <laughs> and and uh, I can imagine. he tried to burn me like he did with a lot of people with a cigarette and uh, yeah. get a germs burn. Right. Oh. oh, the church. Yeah, the church next door. Nice. Yeah. That's right with the Darby crash. Yeah, right. Hey, Darby. He's speaking to us. Yeah. Sorry to, sorry to speak ill of you. I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. I didn't even know about the germs really that much until I watched that. Ironically, at Steve Albini's studio, we watched the decline of Western civilization. Oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, didn't was did they have the germs in it, or was this Darby Crash band? Oh, it's. I think they talked about the germs in it. He probably talked about. I, yeah, he probably. I can't remember if he was in it because that was right about the time that he, you know, he he went to England and came back with an Adam and the Ant like mohawk. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and. You know, next thing I know, he was he'd left the Germs and he'd formed the Darby Crash Band, right? And um, and they they did a few shows and then he died. Yeah, you know, same day as John Lennon. So, Is that right? Yeah, same exact I didn't day. Know that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of people thought that Darby would have been pissed to have been like, oh, you know, overshadowed, overshadowed by John Lennon. <laughs> but he's the guy. You you know, people were more interested in talking about John Lennon than Darby Crash, yeah. since only like five people knew about Darby at the right. time. But uh, I, I, I'm going to go on record as saying that Germ shows live were not were were not very. The ones I saw were yeah. not very good, but oh, the they, records were amazing. Yeah, you know, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of his best stuff was recorded by um, um, uh, Nietzsche, uh, the guy that was uh, shit. The guy was in. Uh, um, he was part of the Phil Spector Wall of Sound, and. Uh, I think it is before my time. I don't know yeah. that much about their band. Yeah, but he was also uh, involved with Crazy Horse, Neil yeah. Young, but he yeah. got really new his production, and he really made the germs sound great in the studio. And then he also had the other the other uh, uh, producer was um, the girl from The Runaways, uh, Joan Jett. Yeah. And so between those two producers, he got the germs sounded fantastic on record. They should and, get an award for that because that's like catching a unicorn. Because every footage, every you know, every time I see footage of them, it's just falling apart. It's just apart. a mess. Yeah, it, the germs were a mess. They were terrible live. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, um, uh, Pat Smear was in fact a pretty good guitar player, yeah. and you know, they often he would often start out by playing roundabout. Oh, yeah. yes. yes, that was how That's they would the start. Song. So he had like a he had like prog rock background, yeah. right? So he was the guy who knew how to play, and and he's still a great guitar player. Right. He ended up forming join, joining yeah. up with Foo Fighters. Before that, he was with Nirvana. Yeah. Uh, after the Germs, and he was in a bunch of other bands. He was really good, but the Germs themselves were just a mess. Yeah. And the fact that you're right, it was like catching a unicorn. Like to get Joan Jett and uh, uh, the other guy, whoever's. Uh, they, they they really did this amazing thing. Yeah. They they made this terrible band sound amazing, and that's what you listen to now. I right. Mean, and, and that's what those, they remember. That, that 
band, that album, GI, is still a good album. It really is. It's way better and than I, they ever I, put I, out. I feel like that's what they were. He just seemed so messed up that they could never hold it together. You know what I mean? Like, live. Like, it seemed like that's what the band could have been if they were Yeah, if they could together. have been. They could have been, but he, it, you know, I mean, it was the triumph of attitude over musicianship. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? It was all attitude. I, I've been told by friends, I never saw them, but I, I was told by friends who uh, saw a lot of Sex Pistols show mm-hmm. that it was always a mess. Yeah. And that it almost never, it was almost always theater, and it was almost always, like, audience um, agitation yeah. and and uh, an incitement right. and that there was like you, uh, uh, like a, a, apparently a sex pistols show might have 10 minutes of music and like 50 minutes of mayhem right. you know what i which mean which makes sense i mean it's punk It'd right, be weird right. If they got up yeah. there and they were like a skiffle band who just played like the song. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and again, they also had two very frustrated musicians yeah. that were really good, you know. Um, and they had to deal with uh, Johnny Lydon and Sid Vicious, who didn't weren't musicians, right. and uh, I don't know. They you were know, just personalities. Yeah, they were. They were. Yeah. Well, Johnny Lydon is kind of a genius, but uh, you know, what whatever, you yeah. know. But uh, yeah, so anyway, the germs were terrible. But uh, you know, glad, so, but growing glad up, to have you, seen them. You you would go see punk stuff, and did oh you, yeah yeah. And at this point, was music your thing when you were younger, or were you doing art in high school, or when did you? Well, I, that was uh, post high school. Um, you know, I, I kind of gave up art for a time, especially during the punk scene. I I, I didn't. I put out some zines with friends of mine. I really didn't, you know, I was, you know, for me, art was just too bourgeois, you know. I just, I couldn't relate to, like, you know, like a a white, you know, four white walls and, and, you know, Chardonnay, you know. It just just seemed, like, totally bogus to me. So um, I stopped making art. And, well, I I didn't stop making art. I just started making zines, Mm -hmm. which, in you know, being really influenced, say, by Guy Debord and... This idea of the democratization of of art and mm-hmm. the, the sort of uh, the you, you know uh, sort of you know sort of trying to reify the spectacle, if you will, and yeah. being involved with situationism, it just seemed like that was like more germane to like what was important. But essentially, I I. I you know, it, it just wasn't enough for me, and I really like working with my hands. I really like thinking with my hands. I really like making stuff. Yeah. And I eventually started slowly making art against my will. And uh, so my initial works were almost all installations, yeah. you know, that, um, and, um, that involved, uh, you know, a certain amount of low, uh, or a certain amount of, you know, technology or whatever, and, and they were all very in, involved in sort of the politics of escapism mm-hmm. and uh, while delivering an escapist experience. They weren't actually very punk rock, but it was sort of like a punk rock light in space. Right. I was really influenced by Terrell and I was really influenced by Black Flag. Yeah. So I was making this sort of ad hoc, really kind of like taking garbage, and but sort of trying to create sort of like trippy other worlds, you know. Uh, that, sounds really that, good. Huh? It sounds really good. Eh, you know, it was, <laughs> uh, it, 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 uh, it seemed, it seemed, it, it, for me, you know, with Ronald Reagan as being president, 
you know, um, it seemed like the, like we had achieved at, in our culture as, in a, the ascendancy of the unreal. Yeah. You know, uh, we had now a, an actor who seemed to be portraying a president that everybody seemed to be taking seriously, and it just really was driving me crazy. And um, and and you know, in art school, you know, they were telling us that you know, the worst thing you could make was escape the start, right? Yeah. And uh, but to me, it seemed like the, the the culture of escapism was responsible for the shape we were in. Yeah. It was also responsible for the shape I was in. So I just wanted to make some. I wanted to make some work around that dealt with that. Yeah. And um, thank God, no one ever told Sun Ra that like escapism is a bad thing. Like yeah, all creative well, well space is the place. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes from escapism. And I did a lot of space. I was really influenced by Sun Ra, too, at yeah. the time, interestingly enough. And uh, so I made all these, like, uh, environmental works that, um, like I said, sort of, you know, kind of was dealing with, um, you know, this sort of West Coast minimalism, yeah. you know. Um, James Terrell, William Wheeler, I mean, uh, uh, not William Wheeler, whatever. Um uh, Robert Irwin, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of people, and um, and like I said, Black Flag, like yeah. you know, and um, or, or hardcore, and then um, and then eventually I moved to New York. I I, I continued doing that for uh, about five years here. Mm -hmm. Did a few shows at like White Columns, PS One, Artist Space. They were all installation oriented, and I've slowly started morphing into becoming an accidental painter. Yeah. And um, did you study? What did you study in school? I was studied painting art? and drawing, but I gave it up for because of the oh, burden yeah. of history and because of my issues about um, the commodity status of and art. Guy and, Debord. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it was really pretty much. It was pretty much punk rock. You know, I was pretty much a music scene that's just yeah. sort of like it just made art just seem really stupid and, and irrelevant. Because you know? the music seems so real and direct, and the art and, seems and real so and honest and 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 and. Um, and new. I mean, yeah. you know, it just felt like I was part of something really new, and it seemed like that was where um, some. It's where people were really thinking outside the box. Art seemed really boring to me at the right. time, you know, and uh, and uh, you know, and that was really fun until I don't know around 1980 or so, and then hardcore really took over, and um, it, you know, I mean, there were like bands like like, you know, Germs, Black Flag, that are associated with hardcore, but mm -hmm. there wasn't a hardcore scene. They were right. part of punk rock. Yeah. And then when hardcore got codified, I suppose you could say, mm -hmm. with um, a lot of the kids that were going to uh, Huntington Beach to Edison High, mm -hmm. you know, that's where hardcore guys first came out. Uh, you know, it became really macho and violent, and all of a sudden there were these jocks everywhere, and, and uh, it became really like... Um, Toxically male, yeah. and uh, and and even though I, I I liked and still like many of the bands that were those people seemed to like, mm -hmm. I, I sort of you know kind of would became a little less interested in going to shows, mostly because you know I, you know like I remember being at a Black Flag show for instance, and you know there was no harm intended but i do remember a guy diving off the stage and i just see this doc martin coming <laughs> right from my head and next thing i know i'm waking up on the floor oh, you know and and you know my where are my glasses yeah. you know uh, i think i got a head i think i got a concussion 
you know, and I was like, oh man, and you know, and there were people fighting, and like every time I'd go to show, there would be like big, you know, fights, and it's you know, all people, dudes, right? Just huh? all angsty dudes. Just a bunch of toxic assholes, yeah. and so I was like, God, you know, I kind of got into this because, you know. Um, you know, there weren't any jocks. They were kind of like smart, interesting weirdos, you yeah. know, like, you know, fat, gay, weirdo, arty, whatever. Like that was like, that was punk rock. Yeah. And then all of a sudden punk rock was like these guys that, you know, were like, you know, were jocks, you yeah. know, were on the football team. Like, what did that, you know? So that became problematic. Right. But, yeah, and I still, I still went to shows and I still did stuff but then it, as post-punk started and especially when the paisley underground scene opened mm -hmm. up that that was more my scene yeah. you know and uh you know bands like uh, dream syndicate yeah. and you know green on red and i don't know opal bands like that yeah. where um uh th I, that that was really uh and i started dropping a lot of acid uh -huh. and um is so a, a lot of my started? friends, a lot of my friends that came out of hardcore were starting to drop a lot of acid right. and, and, you know, things got weird again, you yeah. know. And then this is what brought you, this is around the time when you started going back into 2D stuff. How did that happen, yeah. that transition? Yeah, yeah I started dropping, uh, I started redropping acid around 1980. After, um, it, was a, it was funny, it was after I saw a public image uh, show at the um, um, Olympic Auditorium. It was a really interesting show um, that Johnny Lydon had curated that uh, it, um, it was Los Lobos playing uh, when they were uh, Corridos band. Uh -huh. So they came out like with the giant yeah. bass guitars doing Mexican Mariachi acoustic yeah. Corridos. And it was amazing, but they were almost they were almost murdered by the, <laughs> by the, by the audience. There was at least a third of them were under the possession of Satan himself. <laughs> and uh, the beer bottles and the spit and the cigarette butts, just, they were just using their instruments to protect Deflect. themselves from the riot. <laughs> and then the Kipper Kids after that, uh -huh. uh, I don't know if you know about the Kipper Kids. I've heard of them, but I don't they know. They're a... a, a, a um, they were an insane performance art mm -hmm. duo uh, composed of Martin von Hasselberg and this other guy. And um, long story short, they uh, was in a boxing arena in mm -hmm. downtown L.A. that was usually for like um, max wrestling and roller derby. Yeah. And it was just a mostly Latino uh, arena, the Olympic Auditorium. And uh, it was all Latinos that worked there. And then these guys come out in jock straps. <laughs> you know, um, I, won't, I won't go on at, at, at length about the, the show, but let's just say that they ended up uh, throwing a bunch of uh, baking flour onto the audience, like big buckets of it. Uh -huh. And uh, then the audience was all covered with white flour and then followed by buckets of water. So they started oh. like it started turning into a paste. A roux. And, they made a roux with the audience. Yeah, they, they glued up the audience <laughs> and they, everybody was like these angry mud men and they were freaking out. They began to storm the stage and then the Kipper oh kids God. threw in a handfuls of lit firecrackers. And, uh, and that created complete pandemonium. They all ended up, everybody ended up on the floor. There were fights breaking out. <laughs> My friend's nose got broken. 
Um, after that, it was the plugs. They were great. Um, you know, Chicano. Oh, the show went on. <laughs> uh, the show went on. I mean, I was up uh, getting a beer with these uh, and the Mexican bartender guy, and he was like just laughing his head off and just couldn't believe his eyes. And I was, he's like, "What is this?" And I was like, "I don't know." And, and then, um, and then uh, uh, plugs came on, and then the public image. But there was just so much violence. Like I said, my friend's nose got broken. He was bleeding all over the place. There were just fights breaking out everywhere. And then after that show, I just, uh, I don't know, I, just, I was just like kind of disillusioned by the whole thing and started dropping acid and ended up, uh, um, and then that ended up, I guess, starting to inform my work. Yeah. And, uh, and like I said, the Paisley Underground scene started. It turns out other people were doing the same thing and it, the, the L.A. scene morphed into... Uh, into uh, uh, you know it, a further iteration of itself, as did my work. Yeah. So did the whole dabbling into psychedelics affect that two D work, like or how you were formulating the transition from this massive kind of punk install stuff to something that seems a little more well, orchestrated it, or contained it, in a way? Yeah. I mean. Uh, um, you know, I started making, you know, it was assemblage, you know, and you know, room-sized assemblages that, um, you know, that you could say were installations where I was using the tropes of theme parks. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, like, uh, Disneyland, which I grew up next to, and, and uh, you know, um, I was thinking about art installations as a kind of a theme park, you know, that referred back to, like I said earlier, the mechanics of escapism while, while sort of offering it up as a subject. Right. And, uh, and, but, you know, I've started making things, you know, I'd make things, and eventually the things started, like, getting on the wall. Mm -hmm. Like, one thing I made was a, a you know, a bong that had a, the logo of the Symbionese Liberation Army on it. It was <laughs> a seven-headed bong, bong, but you could actually, bong. huh? The Patty Hearst bong? Yeah, yeah, but you could actually, <laughs> had a gas mask, uh, 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 part of the bong where you could actually inhale it. Uh -huh. So instead of the, the entire body going into another physical environment, it, you know, you started, I started having the different parts of the body enter, mm -hmm. you know, these objects. In this case, it was uh, the mouth and nose that, where one could inhale the seven-headed bong, you know. Um, and then I... Was it, uh, it was operational? Yeah, it was an operational. Oh, yeah. It's still, yeah, it's an operational bong. I still own it. Nice. Still have it. Oh, you and then, didn't sell uh, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still have it. I have to use. I have actually smoke pot out of it. It does work. In fact, work. Yeah. Uh, then I made a sleeping bag out of these uh, sex hotline matchbook covers uh -huh. that I called Comforter, where I imagined a lonely dude slipping into this uh, into this uh, sleeping bag and feeling, uh, you know, sexual power mm -hmm. and feeling like maybe the. You know, like his neurological network connecting to the phone system. Maybe, you know, maybe I was the internet hadn't been invented yet, but that's kind of maybe. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this idea of like linking neurological networks to communication networks. Right. And then uh, I made another piece called "Box for Your Head," which was like a piece where one would stick your head in, and you would like complete the object, and inside would be a starry night. Uh -huh. So I did all these things, and eventually they just got closer and closer to the wall. And then I started thinking, um, you know, what are paintings? You know, um, 
I, a friend of mine and me had traded objects, and uh, I had a painting in my house of a friend, and I'd only visited them, visited them before in, in, say, museums, mm -hmm. but I'd never lived with a painting before, you know, and I got to experience it in different moods, different times of day, and I started realizing, you know, just, you know I was having a conversation with this object, and uh, it was different than just visiting an object, you know, living with an object was different. And so I started thinking a lot more about paintings, and I started thinking about at least the pre-modern ideal of like a painting as a window to another reality, and this idea of losing yourself in this sort of sublime space or a transcendent space, and that the painting, in fact, becomes a transportation vehicle to take yeah. you to it within its own world. And I started thinking that that really dovetailed kind of in uncannily with the rhetoric around psychedelic drugs. And, um, it's like a portal. Yeah, it's this whole idea dimension. of transportation portals yeah. and uh, windows, doors, uh, and uh, you know, and uh, I started thinking about, uh, you know, I, I, and so I, I, uh, I started inserting drugs into my work, and uh, you know, using these inlay techniques that I'd learned as a woodworker. And I started putting these pills in my work, and my idea was that I wanted to rearrange the use value of these objects. Mm -hmm. So instead of traveling through the bloodstream to alter consciousness, they traveled through the eyes. Yeah. It was a different route to altering perception, and, and that, in fact, is what art is about. Art right. is about the alteration of perception. So I felt like it was a, I felt like I was in an area that uh, a subject matter that art could handle. And, and I was utilizing my woodworking skills and also the skills that I'd picked up shaping surfboards in the garages of Southern California. I used these sort of working, Southern California working class uh, technical things that I'd just picked up as a kid. Yeah. And I started resonating the, this, this water-soluble ephemeral material, um, you know, to, to like a bug in amber. Mm -hmm. amber. And, and then from the pills, I started growing pot and started inserting that into the work because I wanted to have something that had more of a subcultural relationship because it felt to me like pharmacological culture and the, sort of the, the you know, sort of illicit drug culture were, were pretty much about the same thing. Yeah. You know, there's about the elimination of pain or the, the provision of providing one with pleasure mm -hmm. and there's you know, a whole lot of issues related to that. But then I found that the uh, pot then put the shape of nature into my work, and then it just really gathered steam after that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm now 20, uh, 28, 29 years mm -hmm. into, into this body of work. It sounds like you also used your skills that you must have honed of acquiring drugs from... <laughs> I'm sorry? Of acquiring the illicit substances that you had to use. How did you get that? I mean, you had to get that stuff. Well, I mean, a lot of the stuff wasn't illicit. I mean, a lot of the stuff, like I would go to the Northside Pharmacy on, oh, on Bedford Avenue, yeah. and I'd just buy it in bulk. I'd just say, you know, can I order, you know, 20,000 generic aspirins from you guys? Right. And they would like, okay. You know, I, occasionally I would go, uh, I was ordering a lot of ephedrine, mm -hmm. you, know, through an Ill, you know, through a very, you know, um, suspect uh, mail order place in mm -hmm. uh, New Jersey where I even had to register with the FD with the uh, with the with the government you know cause, uh, I don't know yeah I did a lot of things you know that were uh, and then I and then I would get illegal drugs as well usually yeah. in the form of like expired prescriptions from mm -hmm. friends of mine or whatever 
And I had a doctor who would give me his, his uh, he had just, you know, a whole room of, of, of pharmaceutical samples. And yeah. once he found out what I was doing, he just said, you know, take what you want. Oh, I would take amazing. garbage bags of drugs back um, <laughs> with the subway, you know. Good thing you didn't get caught with that payload. <laughs> I never got caught. Um, I, I, I got, my work got uh, detained in France but uh, for a, a, a spell, and I did have an art opening without any art in it but as a result, but I eventually always got my work back. Which and is funny because the, doesn't the resin kind of negate the... <laughs> yeah, it's my opinion. It's, it's my, my opinion that, you know, I've destroyed their use value. Right. That, you know, they can't be... Uh, they can only be consumed... You know, they can be consumed forever, over and over again, by different viewers' eyeballs, right. you know? But yeah. they remain in a perpetual state of potential power, yeah. you know, that can be conjured, reconjured by each individual user. Uh, if one could use that term, but yeah. Um, but yeah, they are in fact destroyed as psychoactive material. They can't be weighed. They can't be chemically analyzed. In my opinion, it's not just like I've made a designation like Duchamp, where I've designated something mm -hmm. like I now declare it art. Therefore, it is art. I yeah. mean, I physically altered it. Yeah. So my my feeling has always been uh, that that what I do uh, once the object's made is entirely legal. Right. But. Um, you know, on the way, maybe not, but, yeah. you know, but it's never been my, uh, it's never been important to me that they are that. Mm -hmm. These are, it's, I've never been interested in transgression for its own sake, or right. maybe I was when I was a kid, but I'm certainly not, not haven't been for a long time. And uh, it, it, for me, these were the, just the objects of everyday life. You yeah, and know, they mirror that, like you were saying, that kind it's of It's just the stuff that was laying around. You know expanding I mean? your mind and expanding your sort of portal into thinking a different way, visually. Yeah, and, you know, when one thinks about, you know, um, this notion of mind expansion, you know, you can continually see that, you know, uh, um, you know, in, you know, within the history of art. You also see, you know, within the history of art, this notion of utopianism and failed utopias, yeah. which is not unlike what happened to the drug culture, or not, a, you know, like how, say, Malevich be, ended up being co-opted by Stalin, or how the futurists ended up becoming, many of them becoming fascists, yeah. you know, or, or the crisis of faith that we all had to deal with with the end of modernism, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and the crisis of faith that one maybe had to deal with where, you know, these sort of utopic uh, Thoreauian uh, hippies ended up being, you know, falling into disco and cocaine. Right. This was all a sort of like rubble of failure that, um, that I had inherited, you know, uh, right as it was failing. Right. And, and, and so my, the, the, the question for me was, what do you do with that? What do you do with this, this history of rubble, this history of failure? And so for a time, I went into the music scene. And for a time, you know, I did installations. And then now for the last, say, 20, well, you know, almost 30 years, I've been making things that started out as um, uh, objects that were about painting. That, and eventually, I became a painter mm -hmm. at some point. I don't know exactly when that happened. And, and, and I also began, um, even though the work was, was primarily conceptually driven early, now increasingly is is um, the best the best information the best newest information in my work is usually comes to me intuitively. Yeah, you know. So do you think that's how that happens a lot in the arc of someone's life's work is that they enter the sort of river of art at one point 
mm-hmm. and that's kind of like the break into the conceptual side of their practice and then it can kind of become intuitive or insular or you know self-referential in a way because it's really difficult to just keep completely reinventing the way someone's working. The reason I thought of that is because you were talking about those connections between things like modernism, the failure of like dystopia, of mis- um, modernism not working out, things like that. And I feel like nowadays, I think there's, it's kind of like the sublimation of information is a big thing. Like the way information is shifted and not so much visually, but almost conceptually and in, in the experience of how we encounter information has shifted so much. That seems like the major tidal wave in today's world. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. But as an artist, I think about that in the studio, but that's not making me change my work to an all digital platform where I'm sending, you know, text messages as art or something. You know what I'm saying? It's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like I'm reacting to those changes in culture within an iconography that I've built up and I've been really interested in my own work over decades. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Do you think yeah. about that in relation to like what you've done so far and then how the world's changing now? Well, you know, I mean, you know, for me, you know, like when I when I found myself becoming coming back to being something like a visual artist, you know, it was all about like, you know, a, this doubt and this crisis of faith and I almost had to use language and concept to sort of like, sort of uh, rationalize, you know, the, even the making of art. Yeah. Like I had to like, like decide like whether art was worth making or not. And so I had to sort of think my way back to a rationalization, but it was always really self, the initial works were always very self-conscious. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, all, I was always dealing with history and, um, and dealing with the legacy of that and uh, and always, always harboring tons of doubts about the entire project, about being an artist, about the art world, about everything, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and like I said, you know, I, I eventually came to terms with that. And, um, and now it's this, this thing I do. And, and I guess one of the things that, that uh, you know, I guess one of the things that that I sort of feel is important to my work that um, initially has just become more important to the world, that the issues I was dealing with have just become uh, the issue of our world. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of this, this reality scrambled information overload that you're more might yeah, yeah. might be referring to Definitely. this idea of like this endless sort of menu of reality modification like now it's we have cyberspace as part of this menu yeah. you know i when at the time i was thinking about um you know uh primarily theme parks but certainly mall culture was part of that mm-hmm. you know that these sort of artificial realities uh, these immersive realities that that were ch- sort of physical and analog have now been replaced by these sort of like digital cyber realities. Yeah. And like people can now like gender is as fluid as you want it to be online or in the or in the physical world. Yeah. You can go anywhere you almost anywhere you want. You can almost find out whatever you want. That you know, reality is a completely mutable 
uh, world now. We also have our own facts now. Right. We have our Isn't own amazing? news feeds now. <laughs> yeah. we, we, it's, it's just become even more complicated about these ideas around perception and reality. Yeah. And so I sort of feel like that was my subject a long time ago. And it remains my subject now. That's uh, my I mean, overarching subject. It's really interesting. Uh, in thinking about your work, that question was related to the fact that early on, your work dealing with specific things like drug, you know, with that perceptual shift with with uh, hallucinogenics or something like that. Now it's the same sort of. It's always the same thing. It's just a different vehicle. You know what I mean? Now it's I, kind I believe of like so. a different perception of reality, but not maybe in a sort of hallucinogenic way. But now in a perceptual way, it's like. Um, like kids can be perceived by their friends differently because of this online social network persona. Right, you can be whatever avatar you yeah, want to be. exactly. Well, you know, and, and it's not, I mean, it, it, it's uncanny, but, you know, all the early Silicon Valley guys were acid heads, you yeah. know? I mean, if you read the book, the, What the Dormouse Said, like every single guy is dropping acid. Steve Jobs said it was the most, one of the most important experiences of his life. Right. Timothy Leary, as he trans as he as throughout the 80s like he be, he went from being the guru of LSD to the guru of digital reality yeah. he was one of the first cyber guys like extolling the you know this the new cyber revolution you know right. so a lot of these guys i mean uh um the guy who made the whole earth catalog um um, Stuart Brand, mm -hmm. you know, he he wrote, you know, he was Ken Kesey's, you know, light, uh, uh, you know, he did all the the technical uh, light shows for the for um, electrical light acid like that. Well, well, Earth for the, the Trips Festival and for the uh, you know for the uh, yeah for the electrical light acid test. Yeah. And then uh, he ended up writing an article in the Rolling Stone in 1969 saying computers are the next thing. You know, right. like they all saw this as a new way to, to warp and uh, reality in a new way for the brain to travel or the mind to travel into other dimensions, you know. Right. So, uh, so it's uncanny, but a lot of, the, a lot of what we have now um, comes from that, yeah. that culture. Including, unfortunately, cyber libertarianism, right. you know, which, uh, you know, a lot of those guys were kind of cowboys, you know, and, um, you know, there's, there's a dark side to that. Well, and to everything, right? That's the, the well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's for sure. Down. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I mean, yeah. But the my, my punk rock, my, you know, yeah. my post-hippie stuff. Yeah, it's all, it's all fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times things start with this core ideal. That's the dystopic I get. It starts out as a utopic ideal. You know what's so funny about punk rock and all this and within this context is that, um, you know, I would talk to people about, you know, we're at the beginning of something that's going to co be co-opted in within a year oh, yeah. or two, you know. But right now it's fun, but we know, we know that this is like on its way to being a sellout, right. you know. But let's have fun with it while we can before it sells out. But that was a, like, a, like that's like... You know, one of the first, it's like really one of the more, you know, the first really ironic, you know, uh, youth quakes yeah. in that it already knew that it was a joke. Right, we, what, right. Like that was part of, that was part of it was that you knew it was a joke. Yeah. 
you know. And then the thing I hated were the people that didn't know, the later that didn't know it was a joke. They glom onto it. They took it, they yeah, took yeah. it too seriously, and then they ended up having to beat each other up about it, you know. They like, ruined it. I, you know, I, by that point, I kind of got that, you know, like it, to me it all seemed like a joke, including right. art, you know. So, you know, again, I had to work my way through all this stuff to, to just to figure out how to be an artist. Yeah. I, did you feel at all that... Because I sometimes think about this, that it's not even, it's not like the art is the vehicle, whether it's music or making paintings or sculptures, whatever it is, the creativity is the vehicle, but really it's kind of like the impetus or the commitment to creating or thinking in that way that's the real kind of like heartbeat of, of, so you can, it can be in art, it can be in music, it could be in, you know, performance art or dance or whatever it is, but the real driving force isn't necessarily the medium. It's just that desire inside, even if it is, quote-unquote, a joke, because art is mm-hmm. artifice. It's, it's, you know, fake in a way. Like, you're creating a, a sort of, like, faux universe. Or, right, right. So, but it's really that desire and that commitment to doing that that's really kind of... Um, the special part of it, at least to me, I think it is. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, what you're saying is dissimilar to what Solowitz said in, you know, Paragraphs on Conceptualism in 1965. Oh, wow. You know, that I did, huh? I didn't know, but I don't, I haven't Oh, it's that. the great, it's the great tome uh, yeah. that it's, it's where the word conceptual art is, full, is first used. I must have slept in that conceptual Oh, yeah, class. no, it's great. You should look it up. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's fantastic, but, um, you know, he talks about, you know, that, that the, that the uh, I'm paraphrasing right. here, but you know that the main primary creative act exists entirely within the mind. Right. That 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 these acts can be um, then uh, put out in the world as instructions to yeah. be uh, to be fabricated, whereas that in many respects. Um, that became the reason why soul would only work on the wall with right. other pe- having other people execute it. Yeah. You know, these things were like math theories or math theorems or, 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 uh, that could be replicated over and over again, but that they existed, you know, uh, in a, uh, um, a perfect state inside of the mind. Yeah. Not so, unlike every architect who designs a building. Right, they're not out there with the the hammer and nails putting it together, but they're right. they're credited with the creativity and the genius of like creating this new, you know, sort of architectural right. expression. Right, but you know, but that being said, I mean, it's like for me though, the the, the uh, uh, you know, I do plenty of thinking with my fingers. You yeah. know, I do plenty of thinking with my hands. I do plenty of non-thinking. You know, and uh, these evanescent, mysterious impulses that 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 creep around inside my head that I don't know what they are and I don't really want they're inchoate and I don't even necessarily need to understand or want to understand them but I need to make things in order to, to sort of see that stuff and so yeah. the making is still really important for me the physical the pleasure of making things and uh, with my own hands is another level of, uh, of uh, information yeah. that informs the work well, that's the right and wrong of what he's saying is for him and certain artists, that is the real moment, mm-hmm. the moment of conception or the idea. Right, right. But the other artists find that idea, you know, they bump into it mixing green with purple. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. Laying down a shadow differently or longer or making a finger longer or shorter than normal. That's their moment of, of kind of 
you know, their creative breakthrough or whatever it is, that, that's the moment. So well, it's I've never really, I've never really been a purist. You know, I've always been a hybrid. I've always, I have a hybrid mind, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis psychedelic drugs and the culture I grew up in. I make hybrid paintings that often ex consist of say, photographs, real things, and paintings. And I have a kind of a hybrid ideology that would, I could never be really pure about Solowitz's yeah. theories of, you know, that the, uh, the concept as being the, this sort of golden ideal that is like perfect inside yeah. the mind. For me, it was a beginning, you know, but, um, but the intuition is this other thing. So that's where me and Solowit would say depart from each other. Yeah. I've never really been able to like stay uh, as an ideological purist for very long. And, right. and uh, his, 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 his essay was really important to me when I read it, but um, it certainly, um, it was just like, again, a, a, play, a way to jolt my to jolt me into trying to make art, yeah. you know. It's like, oh, you can think this way about it? Yeah, you, know? you can think this way. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and I've had these real great paradigm shifts, uh, thank God, you know, uh, you know, thanks to, the, to some key artists that I saw at key points in my life. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and each paradigm shift uh, had, had, um, had, has resonated inside of me and has been really effective. Yeah. Uh, it has really affected you know my my practice. I, I when I was a um, when I was in high school, I ended up through some weird circumstances. I ended up uh, going to a James Terrell show, mm -hmm. and I was just like skateboarding around in Venice Beach, California, with some friends of mine, and we ended up at this like oh it's an art gallery. We just check it out, and we were laughing. We go into the art gallery in this dimly lit space, and we see a large black rectangle painted on the wall. And we're laughing at it. We're like, oh, <laughs> stupid modern art, so stupid. The guy paints a fucking square right. rectangle on the wall and calls it art. What a bunch of shit. And I went over to it and I touched it. And instead of touching a solid wall, my hand went into deep, limitless space. Right. And my laughter went to, oh, wow. You know, like that is mind blowing. And then I, and then I was super impressed by. I went from like making fun of it to being super impressed by it. And um, and I think that experience has really stuck with me. This idea of what you see isn't exactly isn't what's really there. Yeah. Sort of the opposite of like what Donald Judd would say: what you see is what you see. Right. I really like the art that was what you see isn't really what's there. Or what you think you're seeing, look again. And this idea of the double take became, I, I've, I've realized later in my life, that became really important. That's These like ideas of, huh? It's like a keystone of your, I think what, so. what you I think, think so. It's like a magic, art. you know, like it turned out to be like this sort of like sleight of hand, this like bit of magic, you know, where you set up a premise and then when you, it, when the perception of the viewer sees that the premise is different than what they first thought they is this relevatory experience yeah. that occurs you know for me like my paintings from across the room look like paintings but you get up close and you realize they're an amalgamation of objects with different dimensions physical yeah. dimensions so to me that idea of the the double take was really important but that would be Oh, you know, that would be like almost a 20-year period between the initial experience of Terrell and, and me sort of acting out on, on that and, 
And then, if, you know, it took me a while even to understand that Terrell was so important to that. Yeah. Another artist, I, I saw the Bruce Nauman retrospective at LACMA in the early 70s. And at that point in my life, art, art was Michelangelo and Salvador Dali, right. you know. All of a sudden, I'm in, you know, you know, rooms with neon and videos and, you know, sound rooms and... Uh, Wax heads moving around. Yeah, and... you know, all the crazy <laughs> stuff, you know, all this really early, crazy, funny, yeah. and, you know, uncanny stuff. And all I had to compare it to was, this is a lot like a theme park, you know. Yeah. This is a lot like, instead of, but instead of being the happy, this is like Disneyland, except for being the happiest place on Earth, it's the most paranoid place on Earth. <laughs> it's, it's like all the repressed stuff that Disneyland doesn't want you right. to, to, doesn't want part of the experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel, I realized that, in fact, influenced me much later in my in, in, at least in my installations yeah. you know so those two big those two artists sculptural you know um, environmental artists really had a huge impact not only on my installations but later on my paintings that's really interesting and you know I just remember now that had a huge impact on me too because I grew up in Pittsburgh and we had the mattress factory and there's the permanent Terrells in there and there was the one where it was a room you know not sky too room. Much. It's no, it's the one. It's a room like this, and it's just white walls. And at the end, there's a blue uh, rectangle on the uh-huh. wall, painted on the wall. But it's actually a hole, and there's like black lights inside. Right, right, right. And I realized that I love art, and I also want to share art with people. I mean, hence talking to other artists and you know podcasts and stuff, and uh, teaching. And I realized at that moment, like I walked up to it and put my hand, and it seemed so crazy. And I remember going there with friends, bringing. Did you friends think it there. was a flat wall at the beginning? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So it's a diff- similar premise. Oh yeah. Different blew, color, it, similar premise. It blew my mind. Right. But I would bring friends there and walk them in the room and say, "Stand here, watch this." Mm-hmm. And I would run across the room and jump into the room because there was a little room in there. Right. That right. It was just empty, but it had black lights in it. Right. Right. Because I thought this is going to blow their mind. And, and now, did it? They're, now they're going to love art. Yeah, they loved it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, there's, it, it, it's, it's uncanny. Yeah. It's uncanny and, and great. It's like it can blow your mind. It can totally turn upside down your expectations of what art or is. Mm-hmm. And it can all, also be really funny for your friends to watch you go dive into the void. In the exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and, and I, had, I remember being young and seeing that movie Xanadu. Remember that movie? With Olivia, Olivia Newton-John and she's a roller skater, but it's like this alternate dimension where there's a portal that they go into. I, 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 I was like, it. this is like Xanadu come to life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's great that, you know, whatever sort of low pop cultural narrative <laughs> you can throw on that yeah. is great. I mean, you know, I mean, those, I, I mean, I, I've, I've read like Lawrence Weschler's books on, 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 um, uh, Robert Irwin yeah. and you know the idea of like the dematerialization of the object and mm-hmm. the dematerialis and, and, and the uncoupling of narrative and 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 of uh, of, of of any of anything relating to the I don't know the narrative aspects of the world is really important so that you can I think so that you can like hook your own personal Xanadu onto it right I mean that's what you get to do it's such an open field that you can take a a, an Olivia Newton-John movie and 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 put it in just like I was able to like look at Terrell and just think of Disneyland you know I mean everybody brings their own stuff to it see for me unfortunately well not unfortunately but you know 
I, I've been like, uh, you know, I, I started adding lots and lots of narrative, uh, you know, content into my work. So whatever I learned from those guys, I, right. I, I sort of have gone astray from them as well. You know, but you know, I I just got to follow. You know, I got to follow my thing. You know. Yeah, but you I, you've been doing it you've been doing it for a while, and you still like every morning you wake up and make work. Not every morning. Yeah, but you, you know, know it's I mean. a pretty consistent thing, and it's not really like I work towards shows. I just work on a, pretty much you know one object at a time. Yeah. I mean that that you know since about two thousand five, I um, I've been doing a lot of the New York Times these yeah, New York Times great. drawings, and. Um, and I've done hundreds of them at this point. And then um, I, I only did them for the last two years. Like, I haven't worked on resin at all. Yeah. And uh, I ended up going really big with them for a show at White Cube in London mm-hmm. where they were, like, you know, giant. Yeah. And, um, you know, I resisted that for a long time because um, I really wanted the one-to-one relationship. I wanted it to look like the New York Times. And right. didn't, I, I wanted them to be a lot like my work, you know, to you know, that, that double take type of thing. Yeah. You know, I wanted it, it's, it's, a, it's like, like the drugs, it's just stuff that lays around the house. I guess I'm yeah. like an old guy now with a kid and I read the paper and freak out. And, and um, so I started, you know, playing around with that. And, um, and I only now, and recently, just, I just did two resin pieces now where I'm starting to merge uh, text from the newspaper mm-hmm. and news into the work vis-a-vis the vocabulary that I'm more or less known for. Yeah. And I realized that that, that might open up a, a new place for me to say, go. It sounds exciting, like a, a, another door that opened. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, I'm at the beginning of something, but um, it, you know, I, I realized, you know, like when I first started this project in 2005, you know, um, uh, you know, I started thinking about, I had always resisted working with the media, and um, primarily, I think, a lot of it was because a lot of the image text artists from the 80s, like Barbara Kruger yeah. and people like that, had seemed to successfully have figured out something to say about that, you know? And, um, but I, I started thinking about, like, it, in terms of collectivity, this idea of the collective, the collectivity um, of the editors, fact-checkers, photographers, writers, how they come together in a kind of a hive mind. And I, I started realizing that as a, as, a, um, as a collagist, as a person who uses the images of others, that, that I'm conducting this sort of sample choir and that in a funny way, it's also a collectivist enterprise. Yeah. And uh, started seeing some rhymes there. I started seeing how the news was affecting my, cult, my life, my perception, my reality. And... Uh, it, yeah, I can go on and on about that, but ultimately it's morphed and morphed. And I started realizing how disruptive the news was, especially in the age of Trump, yeah. how he's, I'm being driven you know, bonkers, <laughs> like my hair's on fire all the time. It's getting in the way of my creativity. Yeah. He's colonized me, like my brain, like some sort of parasite. Right. And, and, uh, and I realized that um, you know, I'm a really lucky person. I get to make art all day. I mean, it's a dream, right? Yeah, you know, it it's is. fantastic. And yet, I'm, I have these staccato sort of little bombs being thrown out, like if I'm listening to radio or whatever, and, uh, or flipping on um, you know, news feed on my laptop, and I realize that there's these, these intrusions you know, of, of, of you know, where I'm freaking out in the paradise of my studio. Right. You know, and, this, and so I'm starting to sort of now incorporate bits 
of text from the news into the work, much like the way media sort of buzzes into the, invades the studio from right. time to time. Yeah. And so I'm playing around with this night idea of interruptions and mm -hmm. disruption uh, from the outside world to this sort of envelope of, you know, that I, uh, of the, this cocoon that I kind of live in yeah. you know, as an artist. So that's, that's where the work is going, I think. That's a, it's a nice kind of metaphor in a way. I mean, it's funny, no matter how good your day is going, especially in New York City, you know, you're just like a bird's going to crap on your head or whatever. It's just like a perfect yeah. metaphor for like, yeah. even if you're fortunate enough to just make art for a living and, and do this every day, there's always going to be that noise or that, that thing that, but I guess that's part of the fuel, you know, that keeps you kind of engaged, you know, with the outside world and with it. Yeah, you know, I mean... You know, you don't want to get too comfortable. You don't want to get too smug, and yeah. um, and uh, I, you know, for me, you know, um, I, I sort of feel it's really important to be itchy, yeah. you know, and to kind of like, if 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 the New York isn't beating the hell out of you, then you know maybe you're beating the hell out of yourself in the studio trying to push your work forward that that just I don't know what am I saying here I just I it, you know this idea of the this this cocoon that I'm talking about in this studio it's never really been so much about pleasure for me yeah it it it's about it's work it is you know what I mean yeah, yeah. And I feel really lucky to do it and I feel really lucky to 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 have it as I may have said earlier, I mean, I do feel that art is an avocation and not a vocation, but right. I'm, I'm really lucky to be able to live on it. But I also feel that it's really important for me to to keep asking myself questions about it and to keep trying to push the work. And, and in that regard, it's not always fun. As a yeah. matter of fact, it's, it can be quite dispiriting, you know. And, and more so, exhausting than just going and... Working a nine to five, where you just know what the job uh, I is, just, and you know, it. I in many in some respects, I almost feel like I was raised to look like you know take orders, yeah, you know, and and in a weird way, I'm now the person, I'm my own boss, you know, and I'm trying to direct myself into my into making things, and 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 I can be at a loss, and it can be really. Uh, frightening and disorienting, yeah, um, you know, to kind of, you know, try to figure out what. What does a boss want? You know, right. what am I supposed to be doing here? You know, yeah. am I supposed to? I don't want to cruise. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to keep pushing. You know, and you know, you have to ask yourself all the time, like, you know, am I just phoning it in? You know, right. and so anyway, um, so I, like I said, I stopped making you know uh, resin pieces for a couple of years while I concentrated on these large-scale New York Times pieces. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to say that chapter's closed, but I, there is this other door opening, and I'm just going to see where that goes. And that's not been easy, but yeah. I've, been, I've, I've gotten a couple of pieces that seemed okay nice. about it. You know, fortunately, now, unfortunately, you can't say. There's one little guy over there that's fairly recent that didn't go to the show. But it's got some, some newsprint in it. And, uh, oh, yeah, there's some text in there. Yeah, yeah. it's got some newspaper. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, a, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's starting. It's starting to buzz. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. So when know. you're working on these, do you? Is it silence? Is it music? 
podcast. What do you listen to? I listen to um, music and podcasts. The germs? Nothing but the germs? Sometimes, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, it depends. I, you know, I, I have a pretty eclectic uh, sensibility. Um, uh, most favorite recent podcasts would have been uh, uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones by Tyler Coe. Uh-huh. David Allen Coe's son and the history of country music oh, nice. and all the uh, seamy and the seamy underbelly of country and he's really smart and it's incredibly great and lends itself really well for podcasting because there's always these musical snippets right. so it's a very aural yeah, yeah. kind of uh, experience so I highly recommend that nice. um, I also listen to the podcast you must remember this uh-huh uh, which, you know, specifically the one about the Manson murders. Right. Spectacular. Uh, uh, must re- uh, I've also been listening to some playlists from uh, uh, called Reverberation Radio mm-hmm. uh, from the band The A La La's, the Amoeba Records guys from yeah. L.A. They have this like, psychedelic uh, playlist of a couple thousand nice. trippy weirdo songs that are just... You know, that run the gamut from Brasilia, Tropicalia, to crazy Afro-psychedelic, to, you know, post-birds, you know, country tripster shit. So, wow, you know, so that's what I was listening to last week. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, I also, you know, I have my, you know, Staples. my songs. Yeah. I have my songs, Did my people, the, my go-tos. Have you heard the new Ross G record that just came out? I don't even know who Ross G is. All right, I'll write it down. Okay, Ross with a G? R-A-S and then G. Yeah. Ross G. Is that uh, hip-hop? Nah, it's think of like a updated take on Sun Ra, probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll listen it's to It's really it. good. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for taking all this time out and letting oh, me come over to, okay, cool. to talk to you. All right. It was great to be here. Yeah, thanks, thanks. I wish there was something this... Uh, you can't see it, anything in this studio because there's nothing here, but then neither can your listeners. So, well, we'll yeah. direct them to... Oh, you you'll direct know, them to a website? Yeah, to your site. All right. I don't have a site, but my galleries, or, yeah, my galleries the, do. Yeah. The gallery site, and yeah. we'll put those links in there. And then your show, when does it open? Uh, it'll be open to the public, uh, I don't know, probably, uh, let's say August 1st. Sure, that sounds good. <laughs> Let's say August first. I don't know. There's like a. There's. It's just going to open. It's going to have a soft opening, yeah. and then there. It's just going to open to the public, and then they're going to have some big opening in September. But, cool. But yeah, I'm just. I'll, and I'm also in a show at uh, White Cube right now uh, called Memory Palace. And nice. I don't know this and that. Yeah. I'm just doing stuff. Well, I'll put up some pictures All right. of your work on the site, and yeah, and cool. people can check your stuff online. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for having All me. Right. All right. Sound and Vision is produced, recorded, edited, facilitated, fabricated, promoted, everything by me, Brian Alfred. You can check out my work at painchanger.com and you can go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. It really helps. Take out a moment. If you can, leave us some feedback. Many thanks for your support.